Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. On the way back from the Yalta conference in 1945, Franklin Roosevelt made an unexpected stop. He met Ibn Saud, the first Saudi monarch, on board the USS Quincy, moored in Egypt's Great Bitter Lake. Wary of the lack of privacy on a navy vessel, the king had left his wives behind, but his entourage did include an astrologer and a herd of goats. To seal the new pact, one of the animals was slaughtered on the deck of the warship. The Saudi kingdom became one of America's oldest continuous allies, and a regular bit part in the drama of presidential politics. With 199 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Priddow, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, Is America an energy superpower? There's been very little global cooperation on the pandemic, but President Trump scored a big diplomatic win this week by getting oil-producing nations to agree to cut output. The deal ended a price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Combined with the slump in demand caused by the coronavirus, it had meant oil prices fell by half. Trump says the deal will save thousands of American energy jobs. But... Pushing oil prices higher in an election year is a ploy more common in Caracas or Moscow than in Washington. In this episode, we'll look into the history of America's struggle for energy independence, the fraught Saudi relationship, and figure out how energy politics might impact the election. As ever, I'm joined by John Fasman and Charlotte Howard. John, Charlotte... I think I've been locked down for about a month now. All my good resolutions about learning a new foreign language, practicing my guitar every day, tidying my house obsessively have gone out the window. I'm losing track of time. How's it going your end? I'm keeping up with a steady routine of, uh, of daily meditation and bodyweight workouts and jogging. Um, I'm hiking in the forest. I'm progressing on my German. Things are going great. I'm just kidding. I'm basically sitting around in sweats, pouring ice cream directly over pasta. <laughs> <laughs> Charlotte, how about you? Well, I'm regretting talking a big game at the end of last week's episode about how I was going to start reading up on American history. I realized shortly thereafter that I have only two goals during this period. One is to keep my children alive and the other is to keep my job. And unless you make my employment contingent on knowing the answer to quizzes, I'm going to wing it gleefully each week. (laughs) You were sounding very lean in at the end of last week's podcast, talking about how much free time you had on your hands. And I know, having talked to you offline, as it were, (laughs) that uh, that's not the case at all. Anyway, Mm -hmm. let's get into it. This week, we're going to be talking about oil, America as an energy producer, America's relationship with Saudi Arabia, doing a bit of a history dive. 
Charlotte, there are a lot of things we could be talking about this week. Why this subject? If you think about how important oil was in the 20th century, it helped determine who won the Second World War. It was integral to globalization to facilitate the movement of people and goods around the world. There were wars fought over oil. It just is very closely integrated both with geopolitics and with economic growth. In the 21st century, you have this interesting situation where America has emerged as an oil superpower. It became the world's biggest crude producer in 2018. And this is what I spend most of my day job writing about is energy. And you've had this interesting test of Donald Trump in the past few weeks, where you had an American president in the interesting position of wanting to prop up global oil markets. Historically, presidents had wanted to have oil be cheap because it was a boost to America's economy. Now America's in a situation where it has surpassed Saudi Arabia and Russia as an oil superpower. And so you see Trump navigating this for the first time. I also think there's a huge amount of din that comes from the White House on a daily basis, as we all know. And it's easy to get caught up in what Trump is saying that's outlandish on a Monday or Tuesday. But in the background, there are interesting structural things that have to do with how Donald Trump is changing America's relationship with allies and with countries who are not historically allies around the world, how Donald Trump is changing America's standing on the global stage. And this is a pretty interesting exploration of that. Okay, you've persuaded me. John? I think that's a great point. And one thing we saw this week is how obsessed Donald Trump is with projecting power. You could see that domestically when he announced that he would decide, not America's governors, when states would reopen. That's false. And he had to walk it back the next day. And you could see it on the international stage when, in a fit of peak, he threatened to withdraw funding from the WHO, ostensibly because of its supineness toward China, but really because it seemed like something to do. It seemed like a convenient boogeyman to cover for his own administration's failures. He has an odd desire to want to claim complete authority while denying responsibility. That's a dangerous trait for a president to have. Charlotte, before we get into the details of this deal, can you tell us a bit about how Donald Trump has used American power to move energy markets? So one thing that's been a hallmark of his presidency is his use of sanctions. So the use of sanctions went up during the Obama administration, but it has climbed particularly quickly during the Trump administration. And he's used sanctions to lean on oil-producing countries that he might not have picked a fight with before. So we've seen this, of course, with Venezuela, which is a very large oil producer, with Iran, where he's put extremely strict sanctions on that country, and also with Russia. We think of Donald Trump as someone who doesn't like to criticize Vladimir Putin, but actually, in his administration's relations with Russia, he's been quite aggressive, both in imposing sanctions on Rosneft, which is the state-owned Russian oil company, and with Nord Stream 2, which is a pipeline that would bring gas from Russia into Europe. And Rosneft views this as Donald Trump just trying to protect market share for American oil and gas producers. America wants to be selling more gas to Europe, so therefore it's sanctioning Rosneft. But In the past, up until this week, the main manifestation of how he had wielded America's energy power was in the form of sanctions. This was the first time that he actually tried to step in as an ally of OPEC. And it's worth just pausing to think about that. I mean, American presidents have railed against OPEC for decades. And indeed, Donald Trump, um, earlier in his administration, often would encourage OPEC to increase production to lower prices. In this case, he 
found himself and thrust himself in the position of wanting to work alongside OPEC and actually push OPEC and its allies to come to a deal. The Rosneft sanctions are interesting, aren't they? Because they suggest that the president's relationship with Russia is a bit more complicated than it's sometimes portrayed, particularly by his critics. Charlotte, tell us a bit about the details of this deal. And also, can you explain to us whether it will stick or not? I mean, OPEC is famously flaky and finds it hard to agree on anything. Are we right to think this deal will stick or will it fall apart? So this deal involved a large number of countries. What had happened is Saudi Arabia and Russia, which had worked together fitfully since 2016 and which are rather odd allies, they don't have necessarily aligned interests when it comes to Iran, for instance. They had worked together since 2016. They had a falling out at the beginning of March that prompted this big price war with Saudi Arabia saying that it was going to flood global oil markets and push down the price of oil, even as COVID was really obliterating demand. And this posed a big problem for oil producing governments and for oil companies around the world. And so Donald Trump wanted to step in and encourage them to come to a deal. And he likes to think of himself as a deal maker, right? And so in some ways, this was him in his element in that he had a role in helping to forge this big deal. It helps to support different governments around the world, as well as support America's domestic energy industry. It comes at little monetary cost to America, and that's because he hasn't actually promised to do anything. And that's what's sort of interesting about this deal and Donald Trump trying to figure out his role on the global stage when it comes to energy, which is that he's not actually an autocrat. He's not actually the head of a petrostate in the way that Mohammed bin Salman is in Saudi Arabia or Vladimir Putin is in Russia, because there are more than 9,000 oil and gas producers in America. He doesn't actually have control over them. And those private companies will lobby against different steps that the government might take, such as tariffs or production quotas. There are ways that Donald Trump just can't actually really control the domestic industry. So it was an interesting deal in that it both showed how Donald Trump is trying to exert his influence, but it also revealed the limits of his power when it comes to brokering these global deals, and particularly the limits when it comes to making them stick. I think it's also the kind of international action that Donald Trump is comfortable with, right? He has an instinctive suspicion of alliances and multilateralism. He thinks that They're a cover for countries trying to take advantage of America. So this sort of directly transactional approach where you're dealing with autocrats, where the sort of mercantilism is built into the deal, he feels very comfortable in this environment. Well, it's nevertheless deeply odd. If you told a bunch of political hacks 10 or 15, 20 years ago that in a presidential election year, an incumbent president would be trying to intervene in world energy markets to increase the price of oil, um, they would have thought you'd gone completely mad. In a moment, we will look at how fluctuating gas prices have changed presidential politics over the years. But first, the usual reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber already, you're missing out. This week, there's a great piece on how Apple and Google have joined forces to trace the pandemic via the three and a half billion smartphones they can access between them. All The Economist's COVID-19 coverage is collected at one place at economist.com slash coronavirus. To receive 12 issues for $12 or £12, bargain of the lockdown, sign up at economist.com slash pod2020. Those links are in the show notes for this episode. When did the 60s come to an end? 
Rock and Roll Law pinpoints the day in December 1969 when four people died at a free Rolling Stones concert on a dusty racetrack outside San Francisco. Economic historians can make a more convincing argument for 1973. You will? Okay, I'll pick you up. I don't believe it! The autumn of that year kick-started America's obsession with energy independence and brought a halt to a very American way of life. When you get a date with Cleopatra, you better have a special chariot. Nothing symbolized the flourishing American economy of the previous decade more than a down payment on a Detroit-made muscle car that got the girls. With split bench seats, deep cut pile carpeting, and a gleaming new front end. And filling it up was no big deal. Richard Nixon had lifted restrictions on oil imports three years before. What more could you want? But in 1973, the old alliance with the Saudis unraveled. In retaliation for American support for Israel in the Yom Kippur War, Gulf countries imposed an oil embargo on the US. It was the first time the Saudis flexed their muscle in the relationship. And it worked. The result was America's first energy crisis. I am tonight announcing the following steps. First, I am directing that industries and utilities which use coal which is our most abundant resource, be prevented from converting from coal to oil. Much like the crisis we find ourselves in today, Americans were asked by their president to do something rather un-American, stop consuming. To be sure that there is enough oil to go around for the entire winter all over the country, it will be essential for all of us to live and work in lower temperatures. We must ask everyone to lower the thermostat in your home by at least six degrees so that we can achieve a national daytime average of 68 degrees. Incidentally, my doctor tells me that in a temperature of 66 to 68 degrees, you're really more healthy than when it's 75 to 78, if that's any comfort. It was one of a raft of energy-saving measures. Nixon even proposed banning Christmas lights. He didn't go quite that far, but Macy's famous New York store had no lights that year and the presidential tree bore only tinsel. Hello, I'm James Garner. Look at that highway. TV stars and race car enthusiasts were enlisted in the campaign to get Americans to use less fuel. A good way to beat the gas shortage is to share a car with friends. At least if you get stuck, well, you've got someone to play cards with. And when you're driving, please drive under 55. Infuriatingly low speed limits were made a condition for states to get federal road building money. Look, if we all help, we'll really be helping ourselves. And if we don't, there may not be enough gas for any of us. High gas prices and the push for energy efficiency would last into the administration of Jimmy Carter, the only president ever to address the nation wearing a cardigan. All of us must learn to waste less energy. Simply by keeping our thermostats, for instance, at 65 degrees in the daytime and 55 degrees at night, we could save half the current shortage of natural gas. It took the arrival of Ronald Reagan in 1981 to rip the solar panels from the roof of the White House. He campaigned on a promise to remove government obstacles to energy production. 20 years later, Vice President Dick Cheney headed a task force to renew the effort to wean America off Middle Eastern oil. Cheney unleashed the fracking boom that made America the world's biggest oil producer. 
But while successive Republican administrations expanded the domestic oil industry, the golden age of American motor manufacturing was gone. My new car, a Datsun 610, the most luxurious Datsun of all, with reclining bucket seats, electric rear window defogger, full carpeting, tinted glass. 1973 was also the year Datsun sold a million cars in America for the first time. I chose the Datsun 610 because it is a luxury economy car that gets around 25 miles to the gallon. After all, I have a rather long drive each day. Thanks to the oil crisis, the unsexy Japanese virtues of reliability and thrift began to turn the heads of freewheeling American motorists. John Fassman, it's hard to imagine President Trump telling the nation to adjust its thermostats to a set temperature. But presumably now, were he to do so, he'd be telling the nation to turn up its heating, to use more gas. It's interesting the cultural resonances that package sort of brought up. The idea that in just the space of a few years, Americans sort of switched from the big Detroit muscle cars to little Japanese efficiency cars. It got me thinking about, in the last election, the centrality of Trump's defense of coal. One of the first pieces I wrote when I came back from Asia in 2017 was what Trump is really talking about when he talks about coal. And it seemed to me that his defense of that industry was rooted in two things. The first is, of course, the largesse that coal firms showed him. But more important, I think, is that coal for him symbolizes this certain image of like of mid-20th century American brawn. You know, the coal miners are stoic tough guys with hard hats and pickaxes who go way underground to dig coal out of Appalachian seams. And I think a defense of oil could work in the same way. He could pose this idea that being American means driving wherever you want, whenever you want, against, say, the Green New Deal and, you know, weenies in Toyota Priuses, for instance. And just as a side note, I love my Prius. And there are a lot more people who work in oil and gas than work in coal. So I expect we'll see his defense of oil and gas and coal and fracking rolled up into one. And he'll ride that really hard in battleground states like Ohio and Pennsylvania, which have a fair amount of all three types of jobs. The thing about coal versus oil and gas, Fasman, is that coal clearly is on the way out, in part because natural gas is cheap and so has prompted many coal plants to close. But oil and gas is sort of America's future. I mean, we heard how the concept of energy independence has really been ingrained in American society since the oil embargo in the early 70s. This has been something that presidents have sought, that they have referenced again and again in campaigns for how to make America energy independent. And now America finds itself in a role of being the world's biggest oil producer. I mean, this is really a historic shift. The idea, though, of energy dependence, independence is a bit of a mirage. Even with America becoming a net exporter of oil, it still does import a lot of foreign oil, in part because the oil that America produces is mainly light oil and refineries need crude that's of a heavier grade, which is provided from Saudi Arabia, among other places. But this idea of energy independence is a little bit misplaced in the 21st century. America will never be completely energy independent. And you've seen Donald Trump actually shift the language from energy independence to energy dominance. But his 
perception of what American energy dominance is has all to do with oil and gas. And he's not really thinking about how the energy mix might change, how being a huge oil producer going forward might not be the answer to all of America's problems that you might need to cultivate renewable sources as well. So his framing, even though it's very forward-looking, is still very much grounded in the 20th century without being forward-looking to how oil's role within energy might shift in the coming decades. So John Fasman, through the 70s and 80s, and really even into the 90s, there was this fixation on the oil price, and it was assumed to be what, you know, one of the most important things, one of the most important factors in American politics when it came to presidential elections. Does it still have that same salience, or does the fact that America's economy is less energy intensive than it used to be. You know, has it has it changed that? I think that's a great question. As you pointed out, if you had told anybody 20 years ago that an American president would cut a deal with OPEC to keep oil prices up, they would have assumed that president was tired of being president. But I think in this case, his move, the sort of the effects of his move depend first on where you're sitting, right? If you work for a big oil producer, whether you're, you know, the CFO in Houston or a roughneck on a rig off the coast of Alaska, you're probably kind of relieved because it reduces the chances you're about to go belly up. If you don't work in the industry, you probably kind of like the low gas prices. I don't think those are threatened in the near term by his brokering of production cuts. I think as Charlotte's terrific briefing last week makes clear, demand is really low. It's going to stay low. We're driving less. We're consuming less. And on the whole, I think the fewer people out of work, the better. So I'd say it's probably a net positive, especially since people aren't driving too much these days. So any price rise will be minimal and not too sharply felt. So I don't think this has the same political impact that it might have in other times. You also immediately after this deal was brokered, you saw Trump tweeting about Joe Biden wanting to hurt fossil fuel jobs, oil and gas jobs in Pennsylvania, which, of course, is crucial to Trump's reelection. And even beyond shale states, this idea that Trump is protecting energy independence, which even though, as I say, is sort of a weird concept and not necessarily grounded in fact, people still have it in their psyche that American energy independence is a good thing. So if Donald Trump can say that he's both a savior of oil and gas jobs in swing states and a defender of American energy independence in the global stage more broadly, then I think there is a case to be made that that plays well among some voters. Thank you both. We'll get into President Trump's relationship with the Saudis in a bit more detail in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Let's bring ourselves up to date on where things stand between the US and Saudi now. Roger McShane is The Economist's Middle East editor. We've been talking about what's changed since Donald Trump took office. His first official trip as president was to Saudi Arabia. When Trump arrived, I mean, whoa, like the red carpet was rolled out, literally a military band play. There was an honor guard, Saudi jets streamed red, white and blue contrails in the sky. And Trump was greeted by the king himself. 
And the Saudis, give them credit, they really knew how to impress Trump. They plastered his image all over billboards in the city. You know, you couldn't drive 100 meters without seeing an American flag somewhere. And Trump was the center of attention at all of the events and all the region's autocrats had, had come out to greet him. During the trip, Saudi and American officials announced all these new weapons deals. And, and again, this was something that Trump just loved. I mean, some of them were actually old deals repackaged, but it, it gave the president a chance to brag about all the jobs these purchases would create. In return, Trump gave the Saudis and you know, the assembled autocrats what they wanted. He said America would support them with none of the lectures about human rights and democracy. Let's move on to this oil deal, which the White House has presented as a great victory for the president. Does this deal mean that Donald Trump has got the better of the Saudis for, for a change? I mean, I think certainly give Trump credit. Uh, you know, He got in the middle of this thing and came out of it with a deal that presses the Saudis, doesn't adhere to the Saudi demand that everyone cuts their output in equal proportion. But I also think it was helped by Congress, which sort of played and has been playing the bad cop in the relationship. Congress has been much more willing to hold Saudi Arabia to account for things like the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the columnist for the Washington Post by Saudi agents. It's been pressing the Saudis on their prosecution of the war in Yemen, which has caused a humanitarian disaster. The administration all along had blocked moves to censure the kingdom on these issues. But regarding the oil price war, Trump and Congress were really on the same page. You had lawmakers from oil producing states in America calling Saudi officials, threatening to reconsider Washington's relationship with the kingdom. So, Roger, do you think the Saudis will stick to their end of the deal? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question. It looks great to have gotten a deal. But the real question is, will the Russians and the Saudis uphold their end of the bargain? And I wouldn't be too hopeful. Russia hadn't really been complying with the, the previous OPEC plus deal. And, and the Saudis aren't going to stop fighting for market share. Before this whole price war happened, there were rumors that officials in the administration in America had this idea that Saudi Arabia and the U.S. would team up in, in some sort of alliance to manage the global oil market, and it would act as sort of an alternative to OPEC. It obviously didn't happen, and it was always a bit fanciful, but um, it gives you a sense of how America now views its role in the oil market and also how close the relationship between Trump and the Saudis has become. Roger mentions this idea that America and Saudi Arabia might team up. And I think that's a really interesting one to explore because it sort of points to the fantasy, honestly, of America as an energy superpower for a few reasons. One is that American shale could not exist in its current state without OPEC's price supports. OPEC has been restraining production since 2016, which has helped lift the price of oil high enough to support American shale and to support investment in Texas and North Dakota and elsewhere. When OPEC stops supporting prices, then oil becomes too cheap and American shale companies have a lot of trouble. And you saw bankruptcies already last year in shale rise by 50%. They'll probably rise even higher this year because of all of the trouble. But the idea that America could somehow become an energy superpower on the world stage with Saudi Arabia is really a fiction. Because if Saudi Arabia was to act as a free market powerhouse in the way that some senators have suggested, then American shale would just go totally out of business. 
And that points to the long-term problem with America as an energy superpower in that for now, the OPEC alliance is very fragile and it's kind of rumbling along, but it doesn't seem at all like a long-term solution, not least because Trump has brokered this deal, but actually he's pretty unable to ensure that American producers stick to it. They respond to price signals. They don't respond to presidential edict. And then you get in the situation where eventually, it's not clear exactly when it will happen, but there will be an increasingly ferocious fight among oil producers for dwindling demand, that they're going to be fighting for market share. And that may be because demand doesn't grow as quickly as they think because of climate change. It may be for a variety of reasons, but that's clearly the long-term risk. In that scenario, American oil doesn't fare that well against Saudi Arabia, whose production costs are incredibly low. And so there's this long-term challenge, which is how will American oil stack up against oil producers around the world? And there you start seeing that Trump needs to be a bit more long-term in his thinking, that he needs to think about not just America as an oil superpower, but America as an energy superpower more broadly, which includes not just oil and gas, but other forms of renewable energy. One way you could summarize the 2020 presidential election in terms of energy policy is a hydrocarbons president against a lithium ions and solar panels and wind farms president. Um, I'm sure Joe Biden wouldn't enjoy that characterization because he wants to keep the frackers of Western Pennsylvania on side. But take what's right scientifically, what's right for America and the world in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Put that aside for a moment. If just in pure politics, would you rather be the president running and representing hydrocarbons or running and representing renewable energy? Well, that's a great question. And it just highlights how fine a line Joe Biden is going to have to walk, right? Because on the one hand, he does believe in climate change and environmentalism has become increasingly important to the Democratic Party. It is the party of the Green New Deal, even if he's not fully backing it. On the other hand, he really runs the risk of losing at least Pennsylvania among the battleground states he has to win. And if Trump is able to sort of spiral this into a broader cultural argument about what kind of America you want to see, he runs the risk of crushing losses among older voters, white working class voters, just as Hillary Clinton did in 2016. I think that I would still rather be Joe Biden in this scenario because it lets him run toward the future instead of back into the past. But he really is going to have to hone his message really, really carefully. Joe Biden in the Democratic primary on energy somewhat distinguished himself. He had a huge Green New Deal proposal, uh, but he also was much more reluctant than Warren, than Sanders to rule out certain forms of energy. So they wanted to ban fracking. They also wanted to ban nuclear, which most scientists think will be a crucial part of meeting energy needs going forward. So Joe Biden was actually both very aggressive in the scope of his Green New Deal, but also a bit more moderate and frankly practical in not wanting to ban fracking outright. I think he can make a credible case that he wants to move America towards a cleaner economy without causing an enormous rupture within the existing energy system. Charlotte, it's quiz time. And since we pivoted to your special subject of energy in this week's episode, I thought we may as well stick to your expertise for the quiz. You've been watching a lot of musicals 
during lockdown. Let's see how much has actually sunk in. In The Economist's archive, there's a piece from January 1994 with the headline, Broadway Plays Safe. It highlights a trend for surefire bets, revivals, imports. Which Oscar Hammerstein revival sparked protests against alleged racial bias when it opened first in Toronto? So I think this has to be either Carousel or Showboat, which each had controversial productions in recent years. Is it one of those two? It was Showboat. Congratulations. In the 1927 original, the first word of the first chorus is the N-word. Wow. Oh, wow. Question two. John, you're free to participate as well, even though this is Charlotte's special subject. Which vivid Andrew Lloyd Webber import began life, according to The Economist, as a 15-minute school pageant in 1968? Uh, the Bible one, isn't it? That I'm not a musicals guy. The uh, Technicolor raincoat thing? The Joseph story. You've both got it. Joseph and... I mean, you mangled the title, but you've got bits of it, right? <laughs> Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dreamcoat. Yes. Andrew Lloyd Webber was 17 when he wrote it. I detest Andrew Lloyd Webber, I have to say. I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. I think we finally found something that all three of us agree on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Thank you. That's all from us. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please give us a review and a rating on your podcast app. If you want to get in touch directly, the email is radio at economist.com. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.